Welcome to the Graceway Sermon Cast. Graceway is a Baptist church located in Lexington, Kentucky. We have a heart for God and a deep love for people. You can learn more about our church by visiting www.gracewaylex.org. Now, here's this week's message. What we're going to look at, 1 Peter was written by Peter at the end of his life. He is nearing the end. He is, an, he is a much older man than he was when he, when he was traveling with Jesus and walking with Jesus. And he knows he's coming to the end of his life. But we see writings from a very different Peter than we read about in the Gospels. In the Gospels, we know Peter was, um, he was a fisherman. He was much older, maybe not much, much older, but he was the oldest of the disciples for sure. Um, we find a, a portion of scripture where they enter the temple and only Jesus and Peter pay the temple tax. And you only had to pay the temple tax if you were the, over the age of 20 um, at the time. So we know Peter was the oldest of the disciples, um, which also means that the other disciples were probably in their teens, but in that culture they were still men because in Jewish culture you were considered a man at 12 or 13, depending on your family. Um, not in our culture, right? Whew, man, I'm glad I had no responsibility at 13. I barely have any responsibility at 30, and I can't handle it. Um, <laughs> and so uh, I've always joked that the Jesus and the 12 disciples was the original youth group because they were all teenagers, and Peter was the original parent sponsor. So there he was. Um, <laughs> he was the first counselor. Now, um, so these were all men in their culture that they took around, but much younger by what our, our standards would look at today. Um, I mean, we believe John the Beloved may have been as young as 14. Um, and in our culture, you think of a 14-year-old, very different for in their culture. So we know Peter was the oldest of the group. We know he was a fisherman. We know he was a bit of an impetuous person. He would sometimes speak before he thought. Anybody else guilty of that? Who, buddy. <laughs> Anybody ever said anything you wish you could immediately grab and take back? Like you just wish the words had hung in the air so you could have just lassoed them back down to earth and made them disappear. No, we've, we've all done it. Anybody ever done anything? You, you just acted on impulse and really wish you hadn't done that thing. Yeah, yeah, we're all there. Have you ever had a moment in your faith so full of joy that you didn't think your heart could contain all of it? Anybody? Yeah? What about a moment in your walk with God where the sorrow was so heavy you didn't think your heart would hold it. We've been there. Moments of restoration, moments of a deep truth being told to us that it was good to hear but it didn't feel good when it was laid on us. Moments of joy, moments of sorrow, moments of deep regret for things we've said or done. We've all experienced that. And that's good because there's something in the story for all of us because Peter did too. Peter was a, was a talk first, think second kind of person when he started out. But as we start reading through 1 Peter, we find a little bit of a different person. Peter was a political radical. He was, he was on the, uh, maybe not in action, but definitely of the opinion that the oppressive Roman government deserved to be overthrown and was a radical to that side of things. And when Jesus came, when the Messiah came, Peter, like a lot of people, thought that if the Messiah came in their lifetime, that he was going to come with some geopolitical upheaval. He was going to toss the Romans out on their ear and elevate the Jewish people back up to their former glory. That's, that, that's kind of how he believed. Um, and so but Peter was, was that kind of radical guy. And to him, Gentiles, the only Gentiles he'd ever really had any interaction with were the Romans. So to him, Gentiles, they were the enemy. And here we find in 1 Peter, and, and, and we're going to start even in, the, in that first verse that, that Bethany read for us, we see the change that Jesus made in Peter right off the bat. In the very first verse, he's writing to 
a Gentile church. The churches he's writing to um, in Asia, Bithynia, Cappadocia, Galatia, Pontus, these were, these were churches populated, um, maybe started by somebody of the Jewish faith who knew Jesus as their Savior, but continued by Gentiles. And so he's speaking to Gentile churches, and he says in verse 1, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those chosen living as exiles. Those two words, chosen and exiles. He refers to these Gentiles as chosen, living as exiles. Those two names come from the Old Testament and were, what, uh, were often referred to God's people, the Jews. The Israelites of the Old Testament. It's, it, it, words that were often used to, to refer to them. We know Peter grew up, uh, he grew up as a Jewish young man, so he heard, he heard the Old Testament, the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Old Testament preached over and over again. That's what they learned from as young men, even into their old age. That phrase, his people was called by, chosen at the time chosen by God, exiles, when they were living in exile. And here we see him speaking to someone that in his older days would have thought of as an enemy, bringing them in. That's what the gospel does. It takes what was once our enemy, or who was once our enemy, and it brings them close. It takes where a dividing line existed, and it deletes it. It brings everyone in because the gospel, like the story of Peter, is for all of us and all our mistakes and all our wonderful moments. The gospel is for everyone. It's a running theme throughout First Peter and Peter's life in general that the gospel becomes for everyone. In fact, he's the one who's told in Scripture um, by God that it's now not just a thing for the Jews. You need to take it to the Gentiles because this thing is for the whole world. That's a running theme we find. And so we, can, uh, we continue on. I'm going to... Um, <clears throat> Uh, skip down to verse 5, and says, you are being guarded by God's power through faith for a salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. You rejoice in this, even though now for a short time, if necessary, you are suffering grief in various trials, so that the proven character of your faith, more valuable than gold, though perishable, is refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. These two verses are where we find it very, very similar to James chapter 1, because in James chapter 1, James tells us to count it all joy when we experience various trials, because it will produce, uh, if, if we let it have its full effect, and if we endure, it will produce in us a perfection of our faith. And he's not saying you're going to be perfect as in sinless. He's saying you'll be perfect and complete, meaning we'll have everything we need to, to mature our faith and move it forward and be a whole and complete Christian. Um, and so he tells us to, to, to take joy in the trials. And then he says, uh, it, so that the proven character of faith, and then he, he goes on a little diatribe about faith and says, more valuable than gold, which though perishable, is refined by fire. If you've ever seen the process by which gold is refined, it's not a fun process if you were the gold. Because the gold is put in a smelter and it's melted down and it's brought to its boiling point. And once it's got to its boiling point, everything that's in the gold, every other metal and every other little piece of imperfection that isn't gold, floats to the top. And so who, the smelter who's, who's put it in there, he'll take a sieve and he'll take it through and he'll take everything off the top and get rid of it. And then they let it cool, it hardens back down, and the process starts over again. He's saying your faith is being put to the fire. And if you let him, God will let this process of putting your faith in your life through the fire break it down so that he can take out everything that isn't him. That's a beautiful sentiment, and it's a beautiful idea, but in practicality, you and I know that is a painful process. 
to have the world just throw one thing after another at you, to have life just keep coming at you from every direction, and to have the faith to say, I know it is breaking me down right now, but God's going to use this for good. And that's why he tells us over and over again in his word to look back and see that he was faithful. How many of you can look back at the last crisis you went and say, I see where God was faithful in that? Keep your hand up. How about the one, the crisis before that? How about the crisis before that? What about the one before that? Look and see that God is faithful. Anytime somebody loses their way in scripture, the first thing God says to him is he, to them anywhere in scripture is he reminds them, I'm God. He reminds them of who he is. And God reminds us of who he is when we're going through, when I'm going through the trial and, and the fire and the, and the thing I don't want to be in, the place I don't want to be, God always reminds me of who he is. Because I look back at the last thing I went through and he was faithful. But what do I do? I get this tunnel vision. I get this limited perspective human thing. I get caught up in my feelings in it. And I think, I don't, I don't think this is ever going to be okay. And I get mad and I get worried and I get, I get upset about it. If I just remember the last time and the time before that and the time before that, that he's been faithful through all of it because that's what he does. He doesn't have anything to prove to us. He is proved by who he is and what he has done and how he keeps doing it. It proves who God is to look back on everything that he's done for us. Verse eight, though you have not seen him, you love him. Though not seeing him now, you believe in him. And you rejoice with inexpressible and glorious joy because you are receiving the goal of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Do we know, we, we know we use the phrase saved a lot and it's become, it's become a bit of a churchy word. We say saved. What does saved mean? It means I have, uh, at one point in my life, I have made the conscious decision to enter into a relationship with Jesus Christ because I believe what he did on the cross is the one and only way to heaven and through his blood, my sins are covered, Right? That's a, that's, a over, that's, a, that's a simplification even in and of itself. It's so much more than that. But we use the phrase saved. And don't mistake me. I, I'm not about to say you have to get re-saved. Saved is once. Once saved, always saved. I'll, I'll, say, I'll say it over and over again because that's how grace works. That's how mercies works. That's what God's word says. I've gotten in trouble for saying that before. <laughs> I, got, uh, I, got in, I get invited to speak at Summit Christian Academy. Wonderful school. I love that place. I love the opportunity to speak. Um, but when I was the new guy, I did not know the rule there. It's a non-denominational school. I did not know the rule was if a student asks you a denominational question, the answer the staff typically gives is you need to talk to your parents or your pastor. That's how they get around that thing because they are non-denominational. Not all teachers in that place are going to believe the same thing. And I don't think that's a bad thing. I think it's great for us to get together on some of the things we may not necessarily agree on and talk about them. But uh, I was the new guy in chapel, and I, I told the kids that we were going to, I told all the middle school and high school students, we're going to do an ask me anything uh, when I come back, so just come with your questions. And they all knew I didn't know, and like sharks in the water, they came for me with their doctrinal questions and their denominational questions. Um, and I did not realize I was in hot water until I was halfway through the question of, are you a Calvinist? And there was a teacher in the back going, hmm. <laughs> so in um, the subject of Calvinism, I could go either way on. I don't think you're not a Christian because you're Calvinist or because you, you either are or aren't one. I personally am not, and I explain that. But on the subject of once saved, always saved, that's a hill I'm willing to die on. That's how grace works. That's who God is. Once saved, always saved. His blood is either good enough to cover my sin or it isn't. There's not a middle ground. He either died for all the sin of the world or didn't. I can't lose this gift that he's given me. 
Nothing by my hand. The Bible says once he takes you into his hand, no man can pluck you out. That includes me. I can't pluck me out. And so the salvation, what he says here, you are receiving the gift of your faith, the salvation of your souls. We say saved, and it sounds like it's in past tense. I got saved October 22nd, 2003. Yeah, I'm old. Uh, some of these kids in here are like 2003. I wasn't even born yet. Um, 2003, that's when I got saved. That's the day I say saved, and it's past tense. That's the moment I started becoming saved. Because salvation, as the Bible describes it, is a process. The, it is an ongoing process, and that is why we put our faith and trust in Jesus. It's a faith and trust thing because I'm trusting in him to complete the process in the, on the day, right? My salvation isn't complete until I stand before Jesus and enter into heaven. That's the day my salvation is complete. I absolutely believe he is faithful to complete the work. I absolutely believe he's the only one who can do the work. But I absolutely know that this, I'm not saved in past tense. I am saved. Once saved, once I enter into that relationship, I'll never exit that relationship. But I'm putting my faith and trust in him for the day that that salvation is made complete in him. And so he's saying, because you were receiving the goal of your faith, he says you've gone through all of this for the goal of your faith, the salvation of your souls. And then in verse 10, he says, concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that would come to you searched and carefully investigated. They inquired into what time and what circumstances the spirit of Christ within them was indicating when he testified in advance to the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. And I love this next sentence. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you. These things have now been announced to you through those who preach the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Angels long to catch a glimpse of these things. That sentence in the middle again. It was revealed to them they were not serving themselves but you. And that is a theme we're going to find throughout. It is something Peter came to understand. He was not serving himself. He wasn't even serving the people around him. He was, but in the long term, he was serving the next generation to come. And that's what we're doing. And that's why I've always been thankful that it, I could have ended up in, it, it, it was, it, the Lord made sure I ended up in this church. And this church has always valued student ministry as being something that equips young middle school, high school, even elementary school age students for discipleship and for the kingdom work rather than, and I, I never, I've never really attended another church, but from what I hear some other places, it can just turn into a four-year holding tank with pizza. It's just a, a place for the kids to go while the adults do church, and that has never been this church. And thankfully, it's, it's becoming fewer and fewer churches as we're understanding the, the importance of equipping the next generation for the gospel, equipping the next generation for their faith. Um, and I love that idea. <clears throat> Obviously, I love that idea. I'm the youth pastor, right? Um, verse 13, therefore, with your minds ready for action, be sober-minded and set your hope completely, completely, completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the desires of your former ignorance. But as the one who called you is holy, you also are to be holy in all your conduct, for it is written, be holy because I am holy. I'm going to get into the definition of holiness here in a second, but make sure we didn't miss a couple things in there. Be sober-minded and set your hope completely. Your hope is completely set on what? His grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. That revelation, that day, that day that's coming. 
And then he says, as obedient children, do not be conformed to the desires of your former ignorance. This is coming from Peter as an older man looking back on his life, and you think about all the things that he may have considered his former ignorance and the desire it may have created. He was a political zealot who had misconceptions about who Jesus is and what he came to do. He and a lot of other people at the time believed that if the Messiah came in their lifetime, he was coming to do a geopolitical overthrow, to toss the Romans out, to lift the Jews back up. And what Jesus came to do was so much more important than, the, than changing the political landscape. He came to make dead people live. He came to make death inconsequential. He came to shed his blood to cover the sins of every human being and to take the full weight of the wrath of God upon himself so we didn't have to. And here we are, 2,000 years later, trying to make it political again. I wrote this next sentence in here, and then I deleted it, and then I wrote it again, and then I deleted it, and as I kept studying, and as I kept praying about what, I was, what God wanted me to speak this morning, <laughs> This sentence kept going back in, so I'm just going to read it. And if your first inclination after I read it is to be mad at me, maybe this one's for you. We have to stop preaching conservative political ideology as a replacement for sharing our faith because it doesn't save anyone. Winning people to anything but Jesus is a rival gospel that will not stand. I can't win anybody to my side of the aisle and expect that to be the first step in winning them to my Savior because he says, come as you are. I came to him with nothing. I came to him with sin and selfishness and wrong ideas and flipped philosophy and ignorance, and he gave me everything I would ever need. But sometimes we get stuck in the cycle, especially today with everything that's going on and everything the news is, is sending our way. And it's, I'm not saying those things aren't important. And I'm not saying those conversations need to be had, don't need to be had. But my political leanings and your political leanings aren't gonna save anybody's soul. And if that's not our concern, I, I don't wanna word it that way. That's supposed to be our concern above all else. If you care more, about the statue or the flag than the unsaved soul of the person trying to tear it down, then you have made an idol of the statue or the flag. Whew. Our religious liberty is a gift. The religious liberty we experience in our country is a gift of God. I have no doubt of that. But please understand, it is not essential. Peter didn't have religious liberty. The first church did not have religious liberty. There are churches that have met already this morning around the world in countries where they were not allowed to. Religious liberty is a gift that we are supposed to use as an, another tool in our arsenal so people can learn who Jesus is and what he did for them. But it is not necessary to worship Jesus. It's not necessary to share our faith. It is not an essential part. Nobody in this book had religious liberty from the government that was over them, but they were given a calling by God nonetheless. Does everybody still love me? <laughs> the
Those were some hard things to write down and come to the conclusion for. But this is where Peter was, a political radical, somebody who, yes, probably would have worn a Make Israel Great Again hat and transformed into somebody who would bring in the people that he once thought of as his his enemy because, as he learned, and as I'm going to keep repeating, the gospel is for everyone. For everyone. No matter what political leaning they have, no matter what country they're from, no matter what color their skin is, no matter how much money they have in their bank account, but shout out, come on down, Grace Whale, have you? or how little money they have in their bank account. Shout out to my people who have had them overdraft problems and paid $35 for a Subway sandwich. Can I get a witness? (laughs) The gospel's for everyone. And we keep putting it in a smaller and smaller container when we try to say you've got to believe this thing before you can come to him. And you've got to lean this way before you can get there. And you've got to get this right. Our concern should be the unsaved soul of every man, woman, and child walking by us every single day. Paul said it best. I will be all things to all people that I might by all means save some. Holiness is defined as being set apart. That's what holiness means. When we say God is holy, by his very nature, he is set apart from other things because there's nothing like God. So he doesn't have to try to be holy. He just is holy. You and I, we got to try. It takes effort. Holiness is not our natural inclination. Sin is our nature. And so we lean towards sin and selfishness and shameful things. To be holy is to be set apart. It's not to be perfect. It's to be set apart on purpose. It's to be different from the world around us so that they might take notice of this Jesus we keep talking about. It's not diving headfirst into whatever the political discussion of the day is and saying, well, because I'm a Christian, I believe this. That may be true, and that's fine. But Paul said, not all things, all things are lawful to me, but not all things are helpful. He was looking for what would help him share the message of the gospel most. He was in love with that story of what Jesus did for him. Peter was in love with that story because he lived through it and he knew it. You and I have lived the gospel if we know Jesus is our Savior. We should love the story as much as Peter and Paul did. And we should tell that story with our mouth and with our lives and with the way we talk to people and with the way we treat the people around us and with every aspect of our life. And we should be set apart and different from the culture around us for the purpose of showing people who Jesus really is. Verse 22, since you have purified yourselves by your obedience to the truth so that you show sincere brotherly love for each other, and I love this phrase, from a pure heart, love one another constantly. How often are we supposed to love one another? Constantly. I make fun of my friend Kurt, who is our children's pastor, because every time we sit down to eat, somebody says, well, who's going to pray? And he has the same lame, tired joke every time. I pray without ceasing. He tells it every time. You ever go to dinner with him, you'll hear it. Go to lunch. He likes to eat. You'll, you'll, you'll hear it at some point. <laughs> but the Bible does say, pray without ceasing. It also says love constantly. Continually and constantly. How many of you had siblings growing up? Anybody? Okay. Who was the younger sibling? Raise your hand. Okay. Who was the older sibling? Okay. Shout out to my younger siblings. We're, we're awful um, and we were terrible and we picked at our older siblings and we loved every second of it. And shout out to us that we're also the baby of the family so we didn't get in trouble for it. It was awesome. Right? <laughs> you older siblings, we are your worst nightmare. Um, how many of you got into fights with your siblings? 
yeah. I got some of you down on that row are eyeing each other like there's one brewing and it's going to get finished in the parking lot after church. Calm down. <laughs> we fought. And an older sister, she was, uh, I don't want to say much older because she'll get mad at me, but she's, she's 13 years older than me. So I got, to pick at a, I got to pick at a teenager from an early age. So it was fun um, for me, not for her. Um, we pick at our siblings. We fight with our siblings. We fight with our family. We fight within our family, but we still love each other. That's God's body. We love one another constantly. We've been made family through this blood. We've been, uh, all have been made one blood through Jesus, right? We're family now. So we may not like each other, we may disagree with each other, and that's okay. We can disagree on a lot of things as long as we agree on Jesus. And so we're family. We gotta love one another constantly. You are stuck with this annoying little brother. Sorry, not sorry. You're gonna love it, it's gonna be great. Um, verse 23, and we're, we're, we're rounding the bases here. Verse 23 says, because you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and enduring word of God, and then in verse 24, he quotes the Old Testament, for all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like a flower of the grass. The grass withers, and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord endures forever. And then it's back to him speaking. He says, and this word is the gospel that was proclaimed to you. Imagine you're Peter. You grew up, rural, called to a fisherman's life, you weren't called away like some of the other guys you grew up with to go follow after a rabbi, which was a well-respected uh, area to be in your life, maybe a rabbi in training. At the end of your schooling, you didn't get that, and you didn't continue school. You went to work. One day, this guy shows up, this rabbi who everybody's been talking about. He's a popular speaker. He speaks with authority, and he teaches through stories, which nobody's really done before, and so that's why people flock to hear him. And he says, I choose you. Come with me. I'm going to show you how to fish for men. How to be someone who reaches people rather than, than reaching out and getting fish. And you go with him. And for the next three years, you get to witness power like you've never seen. This man who called you, he was a little radical in what he said because he kept calling himself the son of man and the son of God. And no other rabbi has really done that before. And then you go with him to this wedding in Cana, and he turns water into wine. Cut to a, a, a few months later, and he's walking on water. And you're witnessing this man that you followed that you're starting to realize is not just some rabbi and not just a good rabbi. He's the real deal. This is the Messiah. He's walking on water, and... If you're Peter, he's a little impetuous, but his impetuousness paid off in this moment. He said, let me come out there with you. And, and he did. And so now he's not just witnessing power, he's partaking in power and participating in a miracle. And he slips up. He takes his eyes off Jesus. He sinks. And Jesus says, oh, you have little faith. And it was not quite a rebuke. It was a reminder that faith is what makes miracles happen. That it's a matter of faith. You have impetuous outbursts. You, you, you talk without thinking still. You're still that guy, but he's still patient with you. And through all of it, in his worst moment, this man that you follow, that you suddenly realize this Jesus is the Messiah, in his worst, darkest hour, you deny him three times. You 
are living in the deepest valley your life has ever known. You have denied your Messiah and they killed him. So what do you do? The tomb's empty. You're still not sure what's happened. So what did he do? He went back to work. That's what he knew to do. You go back to fishing and you're out there for a few weeks and you look up on the shore and there he is waving you over. And Peter, being the impetuous guy he was that we know, he did not row his boat to the shore. He dove out, fully clothed, and swam to shore. For the third time in his life, he exited a boat to chase after Jesus. And there on the side of the, of the river, you're carrying the shame of that, those denials. And he asks you three times if you love him. Three times you say yes. And it hurts but it's his restoration. It doesn't feel good. It, it, is a, it is a moment he desperately needed. And we've had these moments that we desperately needed, but they didn't feel good at all. And after that moment, you're given the responsibility because he says, I'm going, and this is for you to do now. And a few weeks later, Peter is standing in front of thousands, and as he preaches, the Holy Spirit, for the first time ever, descends upon the believers becomes part of who they are bodily. And he preached Pentecost. He found fulfillment in Christ's purpose. He began creating churches as he traveled. He made it all the way to England preaching. This is a roadmap of where Peter went, the ups and the downs. And you're on your roadmap somewhere. And this morning, this very week, I don't know if you're on an up or if you're on a down. It's 2020, and the way 2020's been going, you're probably closer to a down than an up, if I had to guess. <laughs> Wherever we're at, there's an up coming. Because no matter what up or down this world's going to throw us, this world is not our home. And that's where Peter came to realize, at the end of all of this, this salvation, this thing we're working towards, that what happens here doesn't matter. And so when he kept preaching, and this government that he wanted to overthrow because of how it oppressed his people who took no notice of him back then, really, now wants to kill him because he keeps preaching Jesus. And he doesn't stop. And he walks all the way to his cross, preaching the name of God. And when they say it's time to go, he said, I don't feel worthy to die the same way he did. And they crucify him upside down while his wife watches. And he sings Christ's praises the whole way. call of the gospel is not a call to prayer, prayer, and everything be okay. It is a call to come and die. To die to yourself, to die to your former ignorance, as Peter put it, to die to your former desires, to die to the world, and to live to Jesus. Peter accepted his call to die, and then he showed others how to do it, and he wrote about it in 1 Peter, and I can't wait to see uh, We've already gotten into 2 Peter in our study, and I urge all of you, go read it. Because as, as he keeps going, you, you find out how this unfolds. Wherever you're at on that roadmap, the up, the down, the hill, the valley, the moment of overwhelming joy or the moment so full of sorrow you don't know that you can take it. The moment where you said something you wish you could take back or the moment where you've done something that was foolish. Wherever you're at, it's a moment God's put you in for the purpose of the gospel. Thank you.
refining you. He's refining your faith. So the heat may be up now, but that's just so the extra can come off and we can get back to what we really are and our faith can be pure again. When the fire gets turned down, even before the fire gets turned down, it's time to get back to work. Winning people to anything that isn't Jesus is a rival gospel that will not stand. And the gospel is a story that should be just important to all of us because it's just as much a part of us as it was to Peter. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes with me? Father, I pray you'd be with us in this time of invitation. For those of us that know you, that have you as our Savior, you would give us a heart to share that message and to love people. And God, for those of us maybe here this morning who don't know you, we, we know you with our head. We've heard of you and we recognize you. We heard what you've done for us, but we haven't had that moment to know you with our heart, to accept that gift you offered on the cross, to accept that you're the one who defeated death for us. God, I pray that you would give us opportunity now. If there's anyone here who doesn't know you as Lord and Savior, they would not leave here today without either coming forward to pray and to hear about you for just a couple minutes or without talking to somebody before they leave. God, I pray today would be the day of salvation. But for those of us who know you, God, let it be the day that we fell back in love with your story. That the gospel became something so much more than a thing that saved us in the past, but a process that's still saving us that we're going to show others how to, how to access as well. God, as we social distance and we physical distance, Forgive us if we spiritually distance. You are the provider. You are our protector. And you're the only thing, the only thing I need to be communicating to the world around me right now is Christ and Him crucified. Help us all to do that. Be with us now in this moment of invitation. Whatever business we have to come do with you, God, help us be bold and step out to do it. In Jesus' name we pray. If you need to come pray, you can pray right at your seat. If you need to pray with somebody, there's there'll be somebody in the back. I'm down front. Let's take a few moments for invitation as we stand. Anne's going to lead us in the song, and then uh, we'll be dismissed. Let's sing. As we come to the conclusion of this week's message, we pray that it has ministered to you and challenged you from the Word of God. We would love to hear from you. If you would like to connect with us, you can go to www.gracewaylegs.org. Click on Contact Us, and we would love to have a discussion with you about your faith. Thank you. We'll talk to you again next week.